Welcome to Stories from Glasgow, a podcast all about the arts and humanities with Dr. Sia Jackson. Each episode, we'll be bringing you the latest insights, news and discoveries from researchers and academics at the University of Glasgow's College of Arts. On today's episode, we're exploring Glasgow's place in comic book history with PhD researcher Daniel Schwertner and Professor Lawrence Grove. Glasgow is home to a thriving community of comic book writers and artists, as well as the famous Glasgow Comic Con. At the time of recording, it's even standing in for Gotham in the Batgirl and Batman films. But did you know that it's also home to the world's first comic, The Glasgow Looking Glass? It's therefore only fitting that Danielle and Billy take us on a panel-by-panel tour of this amazing piece of Glasgow's history. You're both going to be talking to us about the Glasgow Looking Glass today. What is it and what's its claim to fame? So the Glasgow Looking Glass is a caricature periodical and it was first published in 1825 and went through 1826. It's unique firstly because it was one of the first caricature periodicals that was ever published at least in Britain if not throughout the world. The unique part of that is that at this point periodicals were mostly text-based with a few images thrown in, but the Glasgow Looking Glass is primarily image-based. There's some textual elements to it, but it focuses mostly on images. It's important in, in the world of comics in that it's recently been given the label of world's first comic. To give a bit of background to that previously, that was thought to be works by Rodolf Tupfer, Swiss schoolmaster working in the 1830s, and people really didn't know about the Glasgow Looking Glass. It was hidden away in in libraries and archives it was considered to be of interest for local history and it's only been more recently that people have actually looked at it and think hang on a minute this does do everything that a comic does and at 1825 there are no predecessors so it's been given the name the, the label of world's first comic billy you mentioned uh, the local history part of it too and it is still vastly important for that as well my own thesis looks at how it reflected and in some points may have perpetuated uh, discussions around gender class and race and although it only lasted two years i think it's fair to say that it it, it was a very successful and popular publication and when we, when we look at the points of sale what started as a an, a publication that was just being distributed in Glasgow. As it goes on, it's being distributed well beyond Glasgow into England, London, Cambridge. And although it only lasted from 1825 to 1826, it was clearly making its mark. And the reasons for its demise are not due to lack of successful popularity. They're more likely to be because Heath ran into financial difficulties or offended people or had a few debts acquired elsewhere, which caused him to run out of town. Yes, financial difficulties were, I think, a well-known issue with the Glasgow King Glass. Uh, Every issue had a little remark at the bottom that was reminding people to please, uh, when they were subscribing, to please pay the postage. Because (laughs) otherwise, uh, John Watson, who would receive the subscriptions, would have to pay the postage. And if they weren't already postpaid, that dug into their finances. I think you're both going to take us through some of the images and the panels that are in the Glasgow Looking Glass and shine a bit of a light on Glasgow and the world that it was presenting at the time. What's the first image that you're going to share with us? So I think the first one would probably be the Glasgow Fair. 
uh, which was in the, I believe, first issue, if not the second issue of the Glasgow Looking Glass. And it shows the Glasgow Fair of 1825, the Glasgow Fair Day, which some people may know there was actually a big fair that would take place then. And uh, so this is kind of a bird's eye view of it. It says that it's taken from the roof of the courthouse and it's a satirical take on it. So it shows the booths that are set up and a bunch of different types of people mingling around. And it covered a whole, essentially, a back page. Yeah, so it's kind of representative of what they, in the early issues at least, wanted to do mm. with the periodical. I think some objectives might have changed along the way. Thanks, Danielle. I think this was a really interesting one to start with, especially because for many listeners, they're not going to be familiar with the Glasgow Fair. And although we don't necessarily do anything to celebrate it now, certainly not on this scale, it's really cool to see it represented and to see that Glasgow has always been such a vibrant place with exciting things going on. I think we're going to move on a little bit from the Glasgow Fair. Billy, what is it that you've got to share with us? So the one I picked is from the first issue, which is the, the mummy. And so the first issue on the first on the front cover has a picture of a mummy, which is the college mummy, accompanied by a poem and various tiny little pictures of people looking shocked and mummies jumping out at them. And it talks about what the mummy could tell if the mummy could speak. It's giving a historical angle. It's giving a literary angle through the poetry and it's giving a comedy angle through the idea of um, people getting shocked and booed at by this mummy. For the story, the mummy is classed as the college mummy, and there is a mummy in the Hunterian Museum, but apparently it's not the same mummy. And we don't know exactly what happened to the original mummy. It was on the books and then it disappeared. So in addition to being immortalised on the front page of the world's first comic, the mummy seems to have disappeared, which in itself is worthy of a comic story. Yeah, and um, just to add on to that, um, so the mummy is kept with the, or was kept with the Hunterian Museum. And in the 1820s, the Hunterian Museum was actually really popular to visitors to Glasgow. It still is today, of course, but then uh, there was kind of an obsession around this collection of oddities that they had. And so there were tickets available for people to visit alongside the students who studied there. And there's lots of references to this in people who came to visit Glasgow specifically to go to the Hunterian Museum and uh, their kind of reflections on what they saw and the students who were there as well. That is amazing. I love that we've got some mystery going on with the mummy there. Danielle, you mentioned students and the Hunterian Museum. Are there any other aspects of the university that feature within the Glasgow Looking Glass that you could tell us about? Yeah, it does a bit. Um, I think it's different because Glasgow uh, University hadn't moved yet at this point. Uh, So it was still in its original location, I think. It was before it moved. That's it, yeah. It moved around 1870. However, one of the images in the early numbers is of the cloisters of the cathedral, which is where the university had its first classes. So there is a reference to Glasgow history, but also to the university history. Ironically, some 50, 40 years prior to the current cloisters were created to echo the cloisters of the cathedral. There's two pictures of the medical classes or medical lectures that were given, uh, or not specifically medical, but they were just uh, general lectures that were open, some that were open to the public and some that catered more to a kind of like higher class. And it's called uh, Rival Lectures and it has uh, Anderson's and the Mechanics, which there was kind of a rival between it. The Mechanics Institution uh, separated from 
Anderson's, which also gave lectures on different sciences so that they could focus more on a uh, spreading knowledge to the lower classes instead of just the people who paid. And the images re represent well this idea of the posh or not so posh. In, in, in the one picture, it's all very nicely seated, behaving themselves. And in the other picture, they're nearly running riot. They're kind of like two different aspects of Glasgow. Now, Danielle, I think you were going to introduce one of your favourite series of images from the Glasgow Looking Glass. What can you tell us about it? It's a 12 panel series that spans across a couple issues. It's called Life of a Soldier. Each panel focuses on different aspects of the life of a soldier during the Napoleonic Wars. And now the Napoleonic Wars, of course, took place several years before 1825, 1826. The reason that this was so popular that they chose to focus on this is because the 1820s was a time when soldiers' memoirs from the Napoleonic Wars were really popular. So there was one from an anonymous author known only as Thomas. And it was one of the most popular soldier mem memoirs of the time that came out around the same time as The Life of a Soldier. We don't know if it's strictly reflective of just that memoir. It's likely it was kind of a combination of lots of different soldiers' memoirs that were coming out at the time. But it's a satirical take on a soldier's life through the military. It looks from recruitment all the way through to uh, promotion it's a satiric take on promotion because the ideal life of a soldier was that you'd get this really high rank that anyone, even the lowest class of people could go into the military and obtain a really high rank. In this series, however, the man gets the rank of what's essentially an officer's assistant uh, who just kind of like runs around and does tasks for an officer. And that's the highest that he'll ever get. And it's just really uh, reflective of the kind of attitude at the time towards the military, which was kind of looking back on what happened during the Napoleonic Wars and where those soldiers who survived and came home were today. Most of them were not financially well off. They had injuries that prevented them from getting jobs and they weren't living the life essentially that they were promised. It's one of my favorite series and highly recommend that people look at it because it's full of little tiny details that really talk about the time and the attitude yeah. of the 1820s. And also gender expectations. We can look at gender expectations through the view of a depiction of women, but this is an example of a depiction of men and masculine gender expectations. In terms of comics history, it's an interesting one because it's essentially an image narrative, so a story told with pictures based around a central character which is what most comics are, be it Superman, Tintin or Asterix. So this is one of the first comics within a comic. You could say that the very first is a different series from the Glasgow Looking Glass, which is the history of a coat, where the main character is a coat and its various owners. But the soldiers' travels really do prefigure what we come to expect of as a comic strip. Yeah, it's even laid out like a comic strip. It's not always three images together, but like you see in a newspaper today with panel next to panel next to panel, uh, most of them are laid out like that. Do we ever find out the name of the soldier that's presented in this series? No, he's just called Our Hero. <laughs> as, a, as another nod to uh, the satirical take 
on this. There's also another interesting element to it in that I mentioned earlier that there's some textual components to the Glasgow Looking Glass. What they did was they would have the first two or three pages, full pages, or just images, maybe some speech bubbles, and then of course the titles of the images. But on the back page of every issue except for, I believe, the first issue is textual explanations for select images. And with this series, the first three or four images don't have any textual explanations in their respective issues. But once we get to the fourth or fifth image, all of a sudden you get textual explanations for those first few images, as well as every image that comes after. To me, that speaks to the fact that maybe people needed a little bit more of a explanation of what was happening in these images, even though you do have an image narrative, this was something that wasn't quite familiar to readers at that time outside of large broadside prints. Uh, You can have a narrative within that, but once you start getting multiple images to create a comic series, then it's kind of, are people remembering what we told them? Are they uh, fully grasping and reading this image the way that we need them to, since it's in a smaller frame and not a big frame? And that just plays into the changing times and the evolution of caricature prints into what we know today, like Billy said, with comics and comic strips. Would I be right in thinking that we can see the people of Glasgow as the world's first comic book readers as well? Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> yeah. At least comic strip readers. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Good claim to fame for us, I think. <laughs> Actually, just to go back to the masculine gender expectations, can you see how maybe the way superheroes' bodies have been depicted in comics is kind of traced through the ages from that? Is there kind of a stereotypical masculine soldier or is that different? Well, yeah, so it's interesting. In the early 19th century, around the 1820s, um, there was a big difference between like what was like masculine and what was manly, or maybe not a big difference, but there was a separation between masculinity and manliness. In the Glasgow Looking Glass, you might not really see this in the Soldier series. The big difference in looks is what differentiated a poor man from a man of respectfulness, if that makes sense. So you can tell uh, when someone, in these images anyway, you can tell when they're of a lower class, when they're a poor farmer. They have a really rugged look to them. Uh, They have facial differences than a man of respect. Uh, And that starts to change throughout the series. You see them become, he stands straighter. He's not wearing clothes with holes in them anymore. And so that's the difference there. But if we talk about difference in body type and strength, that is seen most clearly through Highlanders or who people who are perceived as Highlanders and everyone else. There's an image in uh, one of the 1826 issues called Letters to Inverary, and it shows a trip that people, non-Highlanders, we don't know if they're English, we don't know if they're Scottish, but they're just, they're not Highlanders, take a ship up to Inverary. They need to get off the ship and they have to go through water. Well, they don't want to walk through the water. And so there's men in kilts uh, who go and carry them on their backs from the ship to the land. It's that type of thing is the separation there. And they're not necessarily bulky, like they don't have, not all of them show like big muscles or anything, but it's the dress that differentiates them from the others. There are gentlemen on that ship who are wearing uh, suits and uh, regular clothes of the day. And then there's the men in the kilts who are carrying them to shore. That would be the biggest difference. I don't know if there's any anything that shows what we would expect to see, like, you know, Superman or Batman today. That, that would be the difference. In terms of evolution, 
that you mentioned here about the way, let's say, Superman evolves. There's an interesting page in the Looking Glass where it shows costumes throughout the ages. It's not superheroes, it's just human beings. And it shows the costumes going from, I think, 1425 to 1525 to 16. So it was, so we see the, the same human beings dressed in different ways. And, and so part of it is the historical aspect, but part of it is to say that surroundings change but human beings don't when we think of fashion i think the tendency is to think of you know women and fashion and the glasgow looking glass has a decent separate like equal separation of fashion for women those types of strips and then fashion for men as well uh with the focus of men being primarily military fashion there are some of like regular everyday fashion between like, you know, the dandies of the early 19th century, the uh, macaroni men of the late 18th century, and then a more like respectable gentleman, just everyday gentleman of the 1820s. But military fashion was really important at that time because it was a way for men to care about their appearance without seeming too effeminate. Uh, you were allowed to care about the way that you looked as a military man without being resorted to being called a macaroni man or a dandy. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected this to be sort of like the focus on men's fashion mm. and women's <laughs> fashion. That's really cool. What was the next image that you were both going to take us through? I have a Life of an Actress. So this was published in 1825, around like autumn 1825. And it depicts a ladder that has multiple different panels going up the ladder. And uh, this is the depiction of the life of an actress who is Harriet Mellon. It doesn't explicitly say Harriet Mellon. So you have to do your research to be able to know who that is. Uh, during the time, they probably would have known who he was referring to. But she is uh, was quite a well-known person at this time, a bit infamous rather than uh, famous, just strictly famous. But she started out life as a kind of poor traveling actress with her mother, uh, made it to the London stage and met a very wealthy banker who became her confidant. And when his wife, his name was Thomas Coates, when his wife passed away, he married Harriet Mellon, left everything that he owned, his share in his bank, uh, all of his money, and it amounted to like well over a million pounds to her. He had children at this time too, which is an important thing to know. He had, he had other family members, but he left everything to Harriet. And he did state that he wanted her to decide who got what. So she did. And his children got money. They got not what they thought they deserved, but they did get a share in his in his fund. And she, that made her a banker. So she got his shares in Coates and Company Bank. She was very well off, could have lived the rest of her life in comfort. But with that money and with that share in the bank came the attention of lots of uh, men, particularly according to the press, men who uh, had lots of debts. There's no no way to tell if this is the truth. This is what was pure speculation on the public's behalf and on the press's behalf. And it's how they kind of framed her in their prints of her and in their articles of her. Uh, she ended up marrying a duke, uh, the Duke of St. Albans. She became a duchess. So she went, this ladder is showing her progression from lowly poor actress to duchess. Interestingly, though, this was published before she was proposed to by the Duke of St. Albans. After doing some research, I found out that this was published to coincide with her visit to Scotland. She went to visit Sir Walter Scott, who was a friend of hers, 
and she brought with her the Duke of St. Albans and his sister. They were doing a tour of Scotland at the exact time that this was published, and it was meant to coincide with that so that people would know who Heath was talking about. Uh, She might have even seen it when she was there. It was highly speculated because she brought the Duke with her that they were going to get married, even though he hadn't proposed yet. He wouldn't propose for another several months and they wouldn't get married until the next year. (laughs) But it shows the last, the top panel at the very top of the ladder is her with the Duke of St. Albans. And she's lassoing a coronet, like she's going to steal it and put it on her head. And it's that type of um, type of journalism. It really is journalism. And that's what I like so much about the Glasgow Looking Glass is that it took the periodical newspaper format and just replaced text with images. Even some of the titles of the images are resemble periodical titles. There's advertisements that are on there in the form of images instead of text. And then there's titles for the images that resemble uh, titles for articles in newspapers. Just uh, visual journalism, if you will, I guess. That's amazing. And I was going to ask whether the depiction of uh, Harriet was a, a favourable one, but I suppose if she's listening the coronet, maybe not. Largely, uh, depictions of Harriet Mellon are not in her favour. They were when she was just an actress. Uh, she was depicted often as a muse. Even when she was, uh, when there were speculations about her relationship with Thomas Coates, she was still depicted as a muse. And he was as like kind of this creepy old man who was coming on to her. But as soon as she gained everything she did from Thomas Coates, and even a little bit before, she was started to be depicted uh, not favorably at all. Just kind of larger than life in both the physical sense and the social sense that she was this big social entity and there was no room for her and that was chosen to be depicted in that way as well visually and of course uh, when you have women who are depicted like this they're always very like robust in the chest and that is the same with her not in this image but in other images of her she's also often depicted as having a mustache which is likely not true at all but depicted for other reasons to show that she was entering a realm that she wasn't welcome in that's fascinating especially the mustache part I want to think of that implication of the idea of she's entering a realm that she's not meant to be in yeah there's so much to talk about with regards to her (laughs) do we know how she knew Walter Scott I want to say oh he was a friend of the Coates family so the Coates family was actually Scottish and Thomas Coates and his brother I believe moved to London from Edinburgh I want to say (laughs) And their family knew Sir Walter Scott. And so when she went to visit him, it was through family connections through Thomas Coates. So how was it the Looking Glass found out about her being in Scotland? Well, she was a very prominent figure at that time. So anything she did was reported. And as soon as the public found out that she had planned a trip to Scotland with the Duke of St. Albans and not just on her own, they ran with it. Everyone knew. And so it's likely that William Heath would have heard or John Watson would have heard and wanted to be like on top of it. And so they created that. We're going to take a slight change of direction in society, moving from an actress turned banker turned duchess to a different side of Glasgow. So what are the next panels from the Glasgow Looking Glass that you've got to share with us? This next image is two images and they're titled Glasgow Bridewell. Glasgow's Bridewell Prison is also known as Duke Street Prison. And it was split into two. So there was where the men were and where the women were. It's kind of 
difficult to say what exactly went on there, but there were always lots of articles uh, talking about whether it was appropriate to have women in this prison that was essentially connected to the men's prison, but it wasn't entirely separate. The second image, number two, Pious Curiosity, kind of reflects this because they were worried that there shouldn't be any men jail, male jailers at this prison uh, because of what could happen to the women or what the women could be exposed to. There was also the concern that any uh, like well-to-do women who might end up there would be negatively affected by any like lower class women who ended up there. And with this image, you can see two women, one who's slightly older and one who's younger, kind of sitting looking really distraught. They're wearing clothes that are well-to-do, well-to-do clothes. They look quite clean. They kind of look out of place in this in this area. And then there's a woman behind them who, like I said, distorted facial features and is wearing really dark, rugged clothes. And she's kind of like laughing at them and is, you know, kind of standing over them as kind of like the negative influence that they would have, that she would have on them. And then there's someone who appears... You can't tell if it's a man or a woman, but I would say based on things that I've viewed in the rest of the periodical that it's meant to be a man's face peeking in through the door at them. And again, pious curiosity. In terms of fitting in with with visual journalism, as Danielle mentioned, these images on on the prison are very much about social circumstances of the time. They follow up maybe on a an image that appeared in, in the first issue, which is part of a series of, of advertisements. So these are mock adverts, and we see the title Board and Lodging, um, and the text says, a few ladies and gentlemen may be accommodated with several well-aired furnished rooms. The situation is private. References as to character required apply below or at the office. So it, it looks like a normal advert for, for lodgings, but the picture itself is of the Duke Street Prison. We only get the joke of the advert when we recognise the prison, perhaps in the same way as Pious Curiosity. The text is saying one thing, but the image is saying something else. Was class quite a common theme running throughout the looking glass? Yeah, it was uh, quite a bit at this time, primarily fitting in with the idea that at this time there was, or in the years before as well, there was the rising middle class. Uh, There were more opportunities for people of a slightly lower class to build their way up in wealth. Uh, And you see this also in the life of an actress. There were ways for people who didn't come from upper classes to gain wealth and to gain prominence. And there was a sense from the people who were born into the upper classes of kind of like a distrust of these people. No matter how hard you try, you will not actually be of this class. We will always be able to recognize you. We will always be able to tell the difference. With regards to women every day, just the general worry by some people of the negative influence of being around women of that class. You want to talk about when women started being able to get more jobs again in in the public uh, and work amongst each other. There were articles that stated their worry of their influence to each other, uh, that they shouldn't be around each other that much, that a woman of a certain class shouldn't be around a woman of a lower class. What might happen? What might they talk about? It is important, though, to note that just because that was being shown in periodicals of this time doesn't mean that that's actually what was happening. If we talk about separate spheres, which affected that ideology, affected men and women, but it wasn't necessarily descriptive. It wasn't necessarily descriptive of that time. It was more prescriptive of what people believed. Women were in the public sphere just as much as they were in the private. 
it just wasn't talked about as much. <laughs> so I think we're going to carry on with themes of class and society. And I think the next images that you're going to show us concern the steamboat to Liverpool. What is it that you can tell us about those? So there used to be a steamboat that went from Glasgow to Liverpool. And I think that the one that's on the Clyde right now used to do that. And I don't know if this is a particular depiction of that exact one or if it was multiple at the time, but I thought that that image was interesting because it shows something that we're, everyone who lives in Glasgow is familiar with. It's, it's another story in several images, although the images appear in different numbers, in which case we get the people arriving at the boat and we get the boat setting off, we get the unfavourable weather and people vomiting. And what it allows us to see is all the different classes. So it's showing this this glimpse of society fashions the different strata using the, the theme of a journey as the background to show us humanity which, which is an age-old literary theme but here it's put into something that everybody recognizes and which is very much down to earth there is speaking of depictions of various different people one thing that is interesting in its absence in the Glasgow Looking Glass is uh, the depiction or the variety of depictions of anyone who's not white. There are a couple depictions of Black people, but they're never in the same variety as the depictions of white people. And so these depictions are of servants, uh, sometimes of enslaved African-Americans of the time. And I think that that's important to play in because there were free Black people in Britain at this time. Uh, who lived prominently in society. And so the question that we that I ask in my thesis is why weren't they depicted in those roles alongside the variety we see of white people at this time? And not just Black people. There are some depictions of Asian people as well and Jewish people. The commonality they have there is that it's never a variety. It's never showing all the different aspects you could have in society the way it is with predominantly white people. The Black people do show tend to be taken, well, I think they are taken all from America with Keane's tour of the theatres. Yes, most of them are either of America or of the West Indies. I think there's a total of three that aren't specifically of the Americas or the West Indies. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Is there a reason for this representation or rather lack of representation within the Glasgow Looking Glass? It's complicated and simple, I, I would say. Complicated in that When you look at satire, visual satire, you see the want to punch up. You see that. It wasn't quite there yet the way it is now, but you see that want. Unfortunately, that sometimes came at the expense of using people of color or other marginalized people to do that punching. And so while you're making fun of this person who is privileged or who is, you know, a royal or a well-to-do man uh, who you don't like, you are making fun of them, but you're using someone else to do it. And so you're also making fun of those people. You're using stereotypes to punch up to someone else. And that that was something that we still have issues with today. Uh, that still happens, but it is quite prominent with that. And then you have the idea that there was a fear at this time of what would happen if abolition happened. Britain had already abolished the slave trade, but there was still slavery you see this in satire prints or satiric prints as well, the the fear of what would happen to people financially, socially, if that happened. And so you kind of see that people are only represented in a specific way. Now, this is 
thinking of specifically of the Glasgow Looking Glass, that's there are other prints uh, from London that do depict free Black people and people of other uh, races and ethnicities during this time. But it's interesting that that is always in London, which you might argue is because it was a more robust city and that's where everyone went when they came to the UK, to these bigger cities in the South. But it's interesting when we take into account that Heath was English. He lived in London before he moved to Glasgow. Not every image in the Glasgow Looking Glass is Scottish specific. A lot of them are, but not all of them. Some of them don't have any indication as to whether they're depicting Glasgow life or Scottish life versus general British life. It is is something that has, you have to do a lot of thinking about it because there's not necessarily a, a single answer for it. It's a lot of different instances and events at this time coming together to create that absence. Billy, I think you've got one more image for us. In one of the early issues, is it number two or three? The, it, it's at the time when Necropolis was being planned. It was it was inspired by Pierre Lachaise in Paris. And so the Looking Glass was, was right up on that. And it had various images of what the Necropolis might look like. And some of them are pretty close. Well, they then followed the Necropolis and their images of the Necropolis as it was set out. And we very much recognise the Necropolis as we now know it. Part of the irony is this is the, the world's first comic showing the Necropolis and the latest comic manifestation, the filming of Batgirl, was done in the Necropolis. In the first issue, it's the imagined Necropolis. I, I think it's under the title of Projected Improvement, where we, we see various ghosts and skeleton, skeletons hanging out under the arches, not quite sure where we're going to put them and where it's going to go before we get the more bodied out, as we might, if you'll excuse the pun. <laughs> version of it in the later issues once it's been there so it's uh it's a journal which very much shows us the evolution of of glasgow things that we take for granted it's nice to see the progression from an imagined project to something which is now very much part of the city well that's also i think one of the best parts of it is that it's a reflection of the past from 1820s so they're living in the 1820s many of their images are looking to the past but they're also at the same time looking to the future. I think that that is something that is so uniquely captured in visuals in a way that it's not captured the same in text. You get to see in images, even if it is satire, even if it is something they didn't think would look exactly like that. It's fun to see uh, an imagination of what the future could look like. In terms of the past of the future, there are, there are a couple of images which talk about industrialization in, in LinkedIn with, with what and the invention of the steam engine and the steam associated with the factories. So we've got Bliveswood Square, which was the new district of Glasgow, which was the up and coming place. And there's one image of it, serene and well-to-do. And then the next image has got the smoke bellowing out so that you can no longer see anything. So it, it was Glasgow being concerned with issues, which a few years later had come up in COP26. The link between the Glasgow looking glass of 1825 and the Glasgow of 2022 is there again. And that just made me realize that we're coming up on 200 years since the Glasgow looking glass was published. We could do a whole conference on it. For we really could. Yeah. Is that an exclusive for the podcast then? There might be a conference <laughs> dedicated. <laughs> you, you heard it here first. If, if Danielle can ever finish her thesis, then maybe. <laughs> Fantastic. Are there any other things that either of you would like to add? Just to say again, Danielle's work is is the breaking work on this subject, which had been crying out for research and which hadn't got it until now. I could end in the way that I end my thesis, which is 
uh, talking about how gratifying it is to see something like the Glasgow Looking Glass that was created in Glasgow, to see that community of visual art, visual satire evolve throughout the past 200 years from something that sometimes relied on harmful stereotypes to get its message across into now those people who were stereotyped and those marginalized groups who were stereotyped in those images, creating images that came from that format. And I like to see that evolution. It is a very clear, very visual evolution of how satire and comic art is for everyone and it can be for everyone. It doesn't just have to be for a certain group of people. I'm thinking specifically of the new comic series called uh, Beats of War, which has the first uh, Scottish Black Scottish superhero. Yeah. Scotland's first Black superhero, I think, is uh, what it goes by. Dr. Kubwabo is the creator of Beats of War comic that has Scotland's first Black superhero. And so I'm thinking specifically of those things when I when I think about the past of this and how the format of the Glasgow Looking Glass can evolve across 200 years to something that's much more inclusive and much more much more inclusive now than it was in the past. Thanks again to Danielle and Billy for joining us on today's episode and for giving us such a fascinating and in-depth insight into Glasgow's place in comic book history. And what a place in comic book history to occupy. Who would have thought that we have what is quite possibly the world's first comic book right here within our own library and special collections here at the University of Glasgow? And not only that, they also gave us just such a brilliant look into Glasgow, the city's past, as well as, of course, the universities too. I know I'm definitely intrigued as to what could have happened to the college mummy. That is a story that is definitely going to stay with me. You want to check out the Glasgow Looking Glass for yourself, not to mention keep up to date with everything that Danielle and Billy are researching next. You'll find links to everything that we've spoken about today in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the College of Arts, as well as find out about new episodes of the podcast by following us on social media at U of G Arts or by visiting www.gla.ac.uk forward slash arts. This episode was produced by Sia Jackson. Music is Notion by Coma Media. See you next time. <laughs>